You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply disaster tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radio comms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, repeated 3 meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID Plus test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I'm back with a frequent guest. I've never been able to say that until now. A frequent guest, Joe Hernandez. He's an urban search and rescue expert. I've been to his training. He's been out there at the Surfside Miami uh, building collapse, the condo collapse. Uh, we, we introduced it a couple weeks ago, uh, right before Joe went out there. He actually spent several days on the site with a lot of people we both know. And uh, he was actually on CNN for several days as a correspondent there. So he's providing some perspectives. Now that the response has been officially been called and we're moving into recovery, Joe is going to come back on here and he's going to be talking about some of those after actions that he observed when he was on site and uh, to help uh, better coordinate in the future some of the wins that he saw uh, and just kind of walk through the process. Joe, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, John, and thank you for having me and uh, how everybody is doing well. Yeah, um, I hope everybody's doing well too, especially the responders who are on the site, and uh, you and I have talked a little bit about that. Uh, Hard to make the call that uh, response needs to end, recovery needs to start. you know, my perspective, and we were talking about this before, but, uh, you know, once they dropped the building, it was like, okay, um, they're moving away. So can you walk us through that decision and, uh, what do you, what do you think about the decision of the timeliness of it? Um, I think the time factor, of course, being a realist is right about that time. We were, you know, going into the 13th day mm. and, um, the factors that were involved with the entire from start of the disaster to basically making that decision, including, as you mentioned, bringing down the rest of the building that was left, occupying uh, a good portion of the pile and leaving them unable to search that particular area and, again, creating a really unstable piece of it. Uh, But it was a decision by the uh, folks that were there, the engineers, as well as the, uh, uh, the command, and uh, supported by the mayor and uh, mm-hmm. financed through the uh, the governor and the state, and I think they made a, a good decision. 
and the dust impaction that that creates, even though they did try to cover most of the pile, uh, is significant. Uh, the shifting underground, et cetera. And so I, I'm okay with the decision that was made as hard as it is for not only the victim's families who you can't even imagine the feelings that they're going through, but the rescuer themselves um, now changing their mindset to go from a rescue to a recovery. Let's uh, let's talk about um, the dust of dropping the other building. One, do you think it was necessary to drop the building when they dropped the building? Um, it was if they wanted to continue them working in the area. If not, the, mm. the, the closure would have been a lot harder. Um, I believe that that controlled bringing it down allows for another area to be searched mm. uh, for belongings and for closure. Even though there will not be a DNA for human remains, um, there are uh, items of belongings to those people. But it, uh, it had to be done so that they can continue closure, even though it, it, recovery sounds uh, a gruesome at times. Uh, it, there still is the procedure of collecting uh, tissue, uh, bodies in the conditions that they are, and uh, bringing closures to that family that there is an answer. Yeah, I think you and I talked about this back in December, but just to like to re-bring it up because it's um, a question that's brought up frequently is, um, like in large-scale incidents like this, you, you find a limb, you find a toe, you, t- you find a thumb. Um, at what point... Do you tell the the family, hey, like you got to cut it off? Um, that's kind of the worst terminology ever, but uh, you know what yeah. I mean. Like, hey, we found one body part. This is your closer. What happens in four months if you find a, a bone or find you know find more DNA? Do you notify the family? Do you try to get them to not be notified? What do you think is the best course of action? I think that. Uh and I'll speak from a personal experience from a personal friend who uh, uh, one of my sons, while he was in Afghanistan, close gold star mother, um, one of the platoon sergeants who uh, stepped on an IED and uh, of course, tragically had his life. And uh, six months later, they did recover his leg. And uh, it was a question of back to the, uh, the mother, do we send this back to you? Do we exhume the, the body and, and add that to that? And there goes the mind. Did I even need to hear this type of information? Would it have been okay if I was never told the rest of that? Now hearing it from her firsthand, the emotional scar that that rekindled, and was it really going to make any difference in her life and her in her family's life of finding part of Brian's uh, body again? Uh, did it really matter? And if she didn't hear that, would she have been okay with that news? as well. And she said that she would have been okay if they would have just not mentioned it to her um, at that point in time, because it wasn't going to change anything. Do you know if, um, in, if in Surfside, they had the family sign a document saying if we find a body part, that's uh, your window closes. Do you know that? No, I do not know. I know that they were going through a multiple step confirmation um, on scene and then send those remains again to a lab to confirm um, and again, take swabs from DNA. But not to my knowledge, um, would they again contact that family member if they were able to check them off the list? I'm assuming that there's so much going on that they probably wouldn't reach back out to that person to tell them that they found more. They would already assume that that that, that was a closure for them. Got it. Yeah. So, um, in terms of like the after action perspective, um, 
your personal uh, preference, and it sounds like as a professional and also from the personal experience, that that encouragement should should stem from, um, hey, once we find some DNA, it's time to it's time to close the conversation just to help people emotionally. That that mental first aid we've talked about that before, um, you know, walk through that process. So, uh, okay, so you you were at Surfside for several days. Um, you 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 actually sent me several pictures of like of Walt that you saw you saw Walt working on the pile. You saw you saw some other people. Um, I actually talked with um, Armando. Um, he was out out of town and uh, when it happened, so um, he he uh, wasn't there initially. Um, from an after action standpoint, coordination and collaboration, that kind of stuff. What did you observe? The good, the bad, the ugly. What can we improve in emergency management? Um. I think from start to finish, um, while I was there, they did a, a really good job. I believe that the incident commander, um, who was given that scene from Miami Dade County Fire Rescue, it's a 2,500 member department, uh, mm-hmm. one of the largest in the entire East Coast, um, has plenty of depth within that agency and technical savvy within that agency. If you add to that all of the neighboring departments within South Florida, all a kind of dual-rolled, cross-trained fire rescue EMS fire-based system, um, he had everything that he needed uh, in the Christmas tree, Um, along with the city of Miami being the host agency for another federal task force. That made it two federal task force, each carrying uh, three to four million dollars worth of equipment that's federally owned and the state really was just waiting for the federal nod of a declared disaster for those assets to be used. And again, utilize all the members in a different role from a fire rescue and department base now to a deployment within a national response system uh, deployment. And if you add the state team that he had uh, his hands available to uh, Florida, having eight total teams to be in federal, and the other six being state assets as well. Uh, Maybe not as large as the two federal teams is not as heavily equipped, but surely have the manpower, resources, knowledge, and trained side by side uh, with those federal members, as you have well aware of, uh, that they do just as well of a job, just don't happen to be part of a federal system. Mm -hmm. And so he had enough manpower, he had enough uh, equipment, he had enough savvy, and everything that goes along with it on that scene and little people know that each team has, you know, several uh, structural engineers. The federal teams carry two structural engineers on each team. The states usually have one. However, they doubled up on those structural engineers. The state itself sent structural engineers. And so there were at least close to probably 20 structural engineers wow. over that time making decisions, whether they came from the FEMA office and or local engineers that wanted to lend a hand with multiple deployment experience all the way from the Oklahoma city bombing, uh, all the way up to now. So very well uh, orchestrated, uh, having close medical, um, infrastructure still intact. It didn't affect any of the community. So it's one of those, uh, maybe easier scenes to control from an emergency management point of view of saying it's kind of localized instead of spread across my entire city. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's including even my, my health infrastructures that are there. The uh, University of Miami came through and just stocked all the uh, physicians that it really belonged to those teams from a lot of those anyways. And they had everything that they need, canines as well. 
and I believe that uh, he held on to his command as he should. Uh, there was no need for him to um, have a point of weakness. He was uh, well-educated, well-trained, and uh, had the resources at his, his uh, hand, and mm. he did a great job at it. Some of the other stuff, we you know, we can take a look at and look at after actions, i.e. the booth setups, the base of operations where they set up the tents. Uh, did it take a while for fences to get put up and keep people at bay, uh, keep even the, the family members at bay just because of how it pulls on everything and, and make a corridor coming in and out. Not so much the responders uh, who are looking for victims on that pile's job. As you know, it's more for that law enforcement and emergency management to make those decisions of, you know, where are we going to pit these people and how well can we uh, make it accessible for them to get every day from where they're staying to the pile, from the pile back to where they're staying. Mm. Well, you were talking about that for the Oklahoma City bombing. You guys call it like the Hyatt or something? This little box that was built is right next to the site. In terms of, I mean, you've already shared several times of like, hey, it's very important where you put up the shelter or, or where you put up the facilities for the responders and the direction it faces. In your opinion, did was that followed this time, or was that a uh, was that a lesson learned this time? Oh boy, uh, here we go, nineteen ninety five, and here we are, two thousand and twenty one. And you know what? The lessons didn't get learned very much. Mm. Um, they still put the responders almost catty corner across the street in a uh, large tennis complex, so it had an open area, hard ground, easy to set up. What we call Western shelters. Um, however, it was, uh, within the distance of smell, mm. sight and sound of what they were doing the entire week. And so to me, it compounds, it goes from PTSD, you call it complex PTSD is why add to the pile in somebody's emotional tank when there's no need to, it bothered me at that time. Some of the teams of course were put a little bit further down the street. I think it was a decision because of space in the area because if there was space, I think they might've made the same mistake with the others. So they placed some of them further down, i.e. Uh, Walt Task Force, Florida Task Force 4 was basically on the beach in a park. Mm. The members woke up and got to watch the sunrise in the ocean. Uh, respite. Yeah. Uh, breath share. Trauma timeout, as we call it. Um, huge. Uh, working through that disaster, tough emotion of what's going on for them and to see how much that decision uh, wasn't correct that to take the building down they had to move the booth they had to take both task forces florida task force one and florida task force two and move them further down the street because they were going to get impacted by the dust as controlled as was explained it was going to be well that's that's the problem with responders like real talk like um you you're used to wanting to be either in scene or on scene and be close to scene as possible just in case something happens. So like the idea of like a, a multi-day response, if you're not training for that, if you're not like thinking about that all the time, then it, it kind of changes the mindset, right? Um, people are shocked when they hear that the national strike team, when they get deployed for emergency management, they're typically not in the disaster. We're at the Capitol. It's it's much better to coordinate with the governor's office at the Capitol than to be actually in the zone. But why would you want to be in the zone? It's in, starting to impact you. I, the idea of like the the dust was impacting the responders. This is like man, that's 
That's one hundred and one. You you said it right. Sound, yeah. uh, sound, sight, and smell. Those three things. Those are your three factors of where you should put up uh, shelters. And so that's a really good after action. Those uh, those people listening to the show, uh, when they're doing their emergency plans for where they put up other responders, um, great call out for the logisticians um, setting that up. Um, yeah, I, I mean that that brings in so many thoughts uh, in itself. Um, okay, so uh, you talked about the federal response. Really interesting uh, of the location because if this happened in 90% of the country, there's not a federal team literally right there, let alone two, let alone a huge department that, um, as you noted, tools, equipment, training, expertise, um, even to understand how to operate in a large uh, like a multi-agency or, or multi, you know, like a, a large group function, having 2,500 people um, in your department really helps uh, understand scale. But in terms of the federal response, I was reading reports that, uh, for lack of a better term, frustrated me on um, the timing of those responses. Uh, not getting into details too much, but in terms of an after action... Of, of timing of state assets, federal assets, who's in charge, that kind of perspective. What do you think that we can learn in emergency management or a leadership capability? I keep calling it emergency management. What I'm talking about is leadership in emergency services, that strategic level. What do you think we can take away from this disaster that can be applied to any disaster in terms of time and coordination? Um, I think it would take a... Uh instead of a reactive, possibly a proactive approach with emergency management and IE, uh, the fire chief, police chief, city administration, and, and talk about those plans. Um, because depending on whose incident it is, IE in, in this fashion, it was that fire chief's throne basically. And from there came out the decision and he held on to it pretty tight. IE, if we go over to the shootings, um, in Orlando, it becomes a law enforcement scene. And so you don't see the others in charge. They're basically part of that organization. So mm. knowing what your uh, capabilities are locally um, and then within the state, I think, is, is massive, being able to work those coordinations out. I know that the state teams, um, the incident was rolled upon as a state asset before the 11-hour mark of when it was declared a a federal disaster by Washington. And so for those 11 hours, of course, it wasn't only going to be a local uh, event, a local job as we call it uh, within their agency, but they were gonna reach out and use mutual aid agreements within the other jurisdictions, city of Miami, Hialeah, Coral Gables, Miami Beach, up all the way up into Broward County, Broward Sheriff's Office, and bring all of those resources into help and then reach out to the state and the state began its mutual aid system, which we have where they will now begin contacting the state teams and get the state uh, same IST, IMT, incident management teams, incident support teams from within the state. And they were already beaten feet on the ground before it was ever declared a presidential disaster. And so mm. I really felt uh, kind of blessed and lucky to know that our state had those capabilities and that it was able to be called upon that quickly. Mm. That was the best. Um, and then uh, everything else was uh, just kind of in the weights and uh, 
was able to work out the uh, the kinks afterwards, even uh, the political kinks. The uh, the political kinks are are always, in my perspective, usually like the biggest kinks of every disaster. It's yeah. uh, it's it's usually a holdup for lots of reasons, but um, they they have the weight and they know it. I would say the the most clever thing an emergency manager or a leader could could do is to figure out the difference between law and rule and to figure out where, what rules you can break and what laws you should never break. Um, Mm -hmm. because when it comes down to like saving lives and responding and getting the job done, you got to be able to be sometimes pretty tough, right? You have to have tough skin and be able to say like, no, we're just going to do it. But at the same time, if you're not clever in how you do that, if you're just bullheaded and you're dumb, and you rub everybody the wrong way, they're not going to want to work with you and you're just going to slow down the response. So that you, you have to be clever of figuring out how do I be most effective and help without pissing everybody off? <laughs> that's right. no, that's of kind of the, the name of the game, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's not always going to happen. You're always going to make somebody angry. Oh yeah. Game. Yeah. And again, that that's part of the game of like uh, how far you can push somebody's button, but you also have to be able to roll with the punches. You know, people are going to do that to you. I've been in plenty of mm-hmm. da- disasters where, mm-hmm. you know, we get in a, I want to say a yelling match. I don't really yell at people, but a, a disagreement one way or the other. Um, I felt like I was usually right. That's why I was arguing with my point. Other people view what they thought was right. A decision will be made and you move on. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've had great dinners and great conversations with those same people two hours later. Um, and I, I think just like understanding that chess match, the test match of a disaster, going back to that political point is not only the responder standpoint of like, how do you deal with a rebel pile, but how do you deal with people? People are kind of your biggest issue, right? The sure. people who want to get a picture, the people who are distraught about their family, of course, the politician who wants to look good or make their opponent look bad you have to deal with like all those different things. And I think those, a lot of those things came out in Miami as well. Mm-hmm. So I agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So what would be, so when you're walking away from this incident outside of the shelters, what are your top three things that you think, okay, if we're going to have another building collapse, this is what we need to absolutely make sure we implement. Um, so we can find success based off of this event? I would say uh, not only preparing as they did for the rescuers and the responders and possibly where they were going to stay, i.e. in uh, Ground Zero, they were actually bused in and we got to stay a couple blocks away at the Javis Center. And Mm. so there you were removed every day and then came back to that area every day. So you had that break. Um, along with that uh, is, is corridors, keeping the public away as far as you can. And that includes uh, the, the coverage of the media, even though they are there for a good purpose at most of the time. And if you are going to allow them to be there, uh, centrally locate them and, uh, and prepare the area before uh, uh, you start allowing them to come into that particular area. Um, at the same time, uh, be there for the, uh, they did a great job, I believe, in bringing those family members one time uh, by bus. So there the emergency manager is setting up parks and recreation, transportation, 
whatever bus system you do have in your community, whether they're small buses or large buses, and bringing those members over to the site and uh, allowing them to uh, to be there one more evening and uh, say a, a prayer for those family members that they possibly have lost in that pile at the same time, um, capture what the rescuers are going through uh, firsthand and watch. I believe that they did a great job in bringing that, and I think they also did a pretty good job from what I saw in individual decision-making, not sure if it came from an EM side of the responders also going out and looking at the memorial that was being set up for those uh, uh, persons that were still missing. Whether that was an emotional trigger, it somehow gives them a sense of uh, meeting that family member, uh, meeting someone else, giving them a sense of purpose. And so it, it was good, I think, from both sides, uh, what uh, was done in that exchange of uh, of persons uh, it's an interesting point you're making in terms of uh i mean big picture you're talking about big picture essentially right, right there right um yeah. what so i saw a report from or a um something that came out for the uh for the mayor mayor about the frequency of contacting the families who were asking questions in terms of staging, did you get a uh, did you get to see it, an idea or how they were interacting with the families at all? Were they putting them in a in a facility nearby? Were they was there how was that coordination piece happening between them? To my understanding, they were in a facility close by. However, some of the family members just lived in the certain areas. I met uh, a daughter of one of the women that was uh, missing who her and her husband lived in Jupiter, Florida. They both worked for Florida Power and Light, and I was able to speak a little bit with the husband uh, and then with her later on. Um, and so some of them traveled back and forth and just kind of wanted to be generally in the area. They weren't really a problem. Um, they weren't really trying to approach the rescuers in any fashion. However, that's not always uh, the issue, and so there still needs to be some type of a coordination effect to make sure that that doesn't go in a certain way. Uh, emotions can run really deep in family members. And, uh, you know, at times they could even become aggressive. We've seen that in calls and just an EMS in, in ordinary situations, let alone knowing that your loved one is somewhere in a rubble pile and hasn't been found yet. So uh, yeah. that needs to be strengthened up. And uh, of course the, the, the biggest scene was having a member of the uh, city of uh, fire department, paramedic, a firefighter, well-trained, however, uh, wasn't exactly rostered to be on the task force, however, met all the qualifications. And because his uh, daughter, seven-year-old daughter, lived in that building with, uh, with, his, uh, with his ex, uh, the task force felt it was extremely important for him to be part of the, uh, of the mission and be part of the, uh, of the search as well. Uh, ironically, uh, he was part of the uh, the team that found. Uh, once they started finding the remains of what he was used to seeing in her apartment and in her living space, he knew that uh, she was around. I I have conflicted. Okay, first of all, that's heartbreaking. Um, it's hard to like talk about logistics when when you hear a story of like that. But in terms of the professional experience. I don't know how I feel about somebody looking for their, even a professional looking for their own family members. Um, 
it, it is in one sense, I want to say irony, but it is amazing that he was part of the team that found his own daughter and kind of the, in a, in a weird twisted way, the peace that comes from that. I was part of the team that found my daughter. Um, but at the same time, the emotional impact we talk about mm-hmm. mental impact a lot. Um, potentially mistakes could have been made because he's working through a highly technical process of removing carefully and to be able to keep his composure and other people are aware, I have to be aware of his, did his team know that he was, um, that he was looking for his own child? Just, just the task force. None of the other task forces knew. None of the other people knew the media doesn't even know his name yet. And I understand the the feelings and thoughts on the other side. However, because that's what he does for a living and that's where he has been trained to do, to not let him at least have that opportunity to do that for his own daughter Mm. would have been him over the fence on the other side. Um, And at the same time, we could say that his mind was in a different state maybe than the other rescuers, but at the same time we could say maybe he was even more focused than everyone else because he had a mission Mm. uh, that meant more to him than anyone else. I can't, he was a driving factor. I can't even, I don't want to imagine what that is like. I will say though that like my, my, now two weeks because I've had basically two trainings, but basically my one week of training with, with you guys, it wouldn't matter if I had no training. I don't know if I would be one of those people that everybody need would need me to be, to not be on that pile. Sure. I would, I would do absolutely everything in my pile. I would probably break 30 laws trying to get onto that pile to look for my, my kids and my wife. So I I understand that, especially with, with training, but like I said, it's a com it's a conflicted thought because in medical, um, at the hospital, you can't work on a family member for that reason. You don't want to make mistakes, but, um, never, never, I, I, in my career, early in my career, I was on a unit with, uh, two other individuals who rode three in a, in a truck. What we, some people call an ambulance. We call a rescue truck, three paramedics. And, uh, in the back of the truck, we go to call that cardiac arrest. Uh, the lieutenant makes a decision and tells a friend of mine that was there, not to mention his name, that it was okay that uh, he got permission from the hospital to call the code. And uh, he didn't fit, he didn't stop. He continued on. I was driving the rig, and uh, we were almost arriving at the hospital. We kind of repeated it to him. Did you not hear that we could call this code? He goes, yeah, but this is my dad. changed a couple things inside that truck and on that day. So uh, understand totally things are always so ironic. Sometimes we just don't understand why you know what the BDU jacket looks like, the coverall that that they're wearing in those rubble piles to keep themselves protected, almost just like an army jacket that they wear, a soldier wears. Mm -hmm. And you were around that uh, scenario that we call the daycare and the bus. And so you can imagine that uh, seven-year-old, then you taking off your jacket and draping it over uh, that child or your own child. Uh, leaves you without work for a little while. Yeah, the... Um, man, I... I Talk about lack of words. Um, in our line of work, we deal with death. And 
um, some emergency managers, luckily or not, but some emergency managers had to deal with response. And the way the world's going, they're going to be dealing with a lot more response. And those who are on a response and coordinating directly with USAR make the decisions for life and death. Where do you send resources, knowing the other people are going to be impacted? Kind of like uh, a call on ending response, knowing you're essentially changing your tempo. Um, you're, you're calling it. Um, but uh, um, because of that, because I've dealt with a lot of death in the field, it usually doesn't impact me because I feel like I've been desensitized a little bit to it. But for whatever reason, you t when you texted me that, because I found out from you, what, 12 hours before the news broke, and I was distraught. I ended up calling a good friend of mine, Patrick, um, and I was just like, I was just like, I don't know, like weirdly, not weirdly, maybe, it wasn't even so much that I, he was like, oh, it's because you're a dad. I was like, I don't think that's it. I think lately I've been so focused on learning how much sacrifice a first responder has to give. A lot of the first responders in 9-11 have cancer. Um, that's still a possibility for you, and that scares me. But, like, when you see a rubble pile like that, you know that they're putting themselves in harm's way. They're sacrificing time for their family. They could get cancer. They, there's widow makers hanging from there. Um, they're putting their lives at risk. And, like, so they already are sacrificing so much. And then you had to get your own kid out of the pile. And then later on, bury your, your child. You know, it's like, it's just, it's it beyond not fair. Seems wrong. Um, the, the, the one solace that I get from all of that is that in terms of an eternal perspective, uh, life is a blip of a moment, eternal I obviously I believe in the eternal perspective and so the idea of that you're happy for billions and billions of years okay you have a horrible moment for like a blip on the on that radar then uh, that makes up for it I'm also grateful for everybody always talks about mercy we're grateful for mercy I'm also grateful for justice because that's not just and um you know basically a man-made man caused whether it intentional or not a man-made incident has has uh you know sure i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say it sucks absolutely and uh absolutely being grateful for that e that, that eternal uh clock that we all get to uh to focus on and, and enjoy if that's where we are that's what we believe in and i truly believe in that same way too and it kind of strengthens uh Everybody has a place to pull their strength from, and I, I tend to be strengthened by that uh, as well. And uh, the family backs that up 100%. And so that kind of is my drive and your drive to continue forward and doing what we're doing and teaching that next generation and, and able to, to teach, you know, deliver this information to those that uh, will be responding in the, in the years to come. Who would have thought uh, at all, John, that uh, – May 24th and 28th, we were doing a FEMA urban search and rescue medical team specialist class. And half a dozen, a dozen of those individuals would be putting their skills to practice um, in, a, in a disaster that had over 159 people missing. I told Walt, I told you, I've said this multiple times, Disaster Medical Solutions, your company, is, has the best training I've ever seen. 
and the the instructors, everyone was uh, top notch. And I said that a couple weeks before the disaster. I'm so grateful. I mean, I already had a ton of respect for search and rescue, obviously, but I'm so grateful to know that the the half a dozen people who are on that pile happened to go through the best training in the country weeks prior. That's the mercy side. The justice part is that I, I'm beyond belief at this point. I, I there 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 is a God in heaven, and there is an eternal perspective, and there are ways to figure that out if you have to put in the work, and that's a whole other thing outside of emergency management. But the mercy part is that people went to the best training in the country weeks prior, and um, the mercy part is that these people, men and women, are on are sacrificing, are willing to sacrifice that much. And the mercy part is to allow a father to go look for his daughter. That That's mercy. Justice might say, hey, probably shouldn't be on the pile. But um, I, can't, I can't imagine robbing somebody of that, especially if they're trained, um, sure. as your point. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great call out. Um, you and I always do this on, on each of our shows. We, we start talking about the details, and then we get, we get the, heart, the heart strings part starts coming out a little bit. But I think it's because you and I have, you, more, you way more than me, but um, been around the block a few times and, and know what it's like. Um, you know, we feel for the survivor. We feel for the responder. What we want to do on, on shows where you come on, especially because you're a tactician, is to be able to help out from the strategic level to make sure the tactics run more smoothly. And so what we've been calling out today are things like, hey, where where do you put your, your temporary housing? Smell, sound, sight. Those three things be aware of when you're putting, uh, when you're putting people up. Um, things like uh, the, the, the surviving family members. How do you give them closure? That's something really important. When do you call response versus recovery? The kinks of the, the political perspective. In terms of like an after action, an initial after action based off of your perspective, you've already highlighted so many things that if I was in Hoboken, Wisconsin, or if I was in Columbus, Ohio, or Sacramento, California, or Miami, Florida, those things apply everywhere. Um, and so I really appreciate you coming onto the show and sharing that. We always do this. We got to, we, somehow we got to like, next time you come on the show, it's got, it has to be like, we have to end it on a positive note. Cause this is like, this is like breaking my heart right now. So. Absolutely. Um, there, there, there will be good times for that too. And we can really encourage everyone to, uh, to focus on some good things and, yeah. To keep their mindset. And, uh, unfortunately this was, uh, you know, we went through the July 4th holiday as, uh, a different event this time around. Um, and then here, ironically on this side of the mm. coast where I've retired to from the East coast to the West coast, I had to prepare for hurricane Elsa. <laughs> we didn't even talk about that. Like the, <laughs> the rain was impacting. <laughs> this is sounds miserable. That's the problem with disaster services is like, Oh man, it, it is kind of, it becomes kind of doomsday preppy when you think about, like, oh man, we didn't even talk about that in terms of the after no. action, <laughs> the actual weather impacting a building collapse. Yeah. Um, turn yeah. basically it turns all the dust and and debris into like mud and concrete, right? Yeah, almost like building a sandcastle and, and taking that bucket of water to create the wall. Good gosh. Yeah, 
it's just that you're making uh, uh, just a solid uh, mud pie almost. And it's incredible. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, the irony, as, as you, we just kind of mentioned here, these guys are the ones returning to North Florida, the Panhandle team, the Jacksonville, the Orlando and Tampa team, and saying, are you kidding me? Now I got to go home and board up my windows. I got to cut my grass if, if I even can make it before the rains come. And I got to pick up everything around the yard because it might be a direct hit up in North Florida. Hey, here's a question for you. Are there groups out there that take care of the, of the families you know, of the firefighters after they deploy? I'm glad you, you asked that. Uh, the answer is yes and no. And so as an emergency manager uh, from that community, i.e. you are the emergency manager for Pinellas County um, and the Clearwater area, Tampa area, Hillsborough County, and you know that your teams are over there. You know you've got 80 responders over there. And if the fire department or the union of the fire department or the benevolent of the fire department doesn't do something, it sure would behoove those emergency managers to stir up that pot and say, how can we help get someone out there to go take care of these loose ends while these members are on a deployment for the last 10 to 14 days? because we know it is an incredible, incredible situation. My, you should bring my wife on and call the show Wives of Uthar, mm. because uh, if anything could go wrong when you're on deployment, uh, it, it goes wrong. The refrigerator breaks down, the car doesn't work anymore, a kid yep. gets taken out of school, someone's sick. Uh, you, you'd almost need powers of attorney for them to fill out the paperwork and pay bills while you're gone. And, you know. Oh, <laughs> you my gosh. There. It's it's crazy on, on either if it's a man or a woman deployed. It it just throws everything in a in a in a kink. And then on on the uh, the funny part is when you come back home ten to fourteen days later and someone else has been in charge, you try taking the helm. Oh, I know. Sometimes they want you to. That's a hilarious thing. Hey, you just got back. Hey, welcome back. You're you're putting you to work. And you're like, ah, oh, you don't know what I just went through. I will say this yeah. on the FEMA side. Uh, I'm going to call out FEMA here real quick. They don't do that. I, I deployed for months at a time. I deployed for months at a time with a two-hour notice, not knowing when I was going to come home. No support. Uh, you're talking about people, everything that could go wrong. My my freaking wife, I'm like in a, I'm in a tornado response, um, and flood, tornado and flooding response in Georgia. My wife, who's young, healthy, beautiful, the whole deal, she like texts me and says, hey, I got shingles. And I'm like, What? How did, how did you get shield? So like, um, it's like, now I'm like worried about her and how she's doing. Sure. She had just started a new job right when that happened. So it's like, and then you, you're gone for months, um, without notice. And of yeah. course you don't like, we have this rule, like on social media, I never tell people when I'm deployed or not because I, my wife's at home alone and now, you know, with kids. Yeah. So, um, maybe you and I can collaborate on some ideas on, uh, you know, even your wife, you know, uh, wives of you, sir, she should start a podcast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thinking of resources for people who support the responders, you know, my wife is kind of the, our family emergency manager for when I'm deployed, right. It, you know, she has to make that, those coordination calls, right? Sure. Sure. So, yeah. She's my incident commander at all times. But, Absolutely. Uh, agreed a hundred percent. I've got one of those too. And I rely heavily on it and, now trying to, to carry that load too while I'm here and she's uh, taking care of our daughter uh, really presents a, an incredible load. But I love the way that you're thinking. I do agree 100% that FEMA does not build, fulfill that role. I know that 
on my personal department, it was fulfilled to a certain degree by our benevolent. Um, and so the guys would take turns to come out. One of them even said, dude, I'm dizzy going around all the trees you got. Can you cut some trees for the next time? And uh, at the same time, for some reason, hurricanes changes directions and our home got impacted. And so our city task force sent units up to take, take care of the check on the welfare of our houses and our, our spouses and make sure if they needed a roof put back on because the hurricane actually impacted those homes as well. And uh, it, it was a welcome uh, relief to those individuals. I think that's uh, kind of the mic drop moment. Uh, moment. And um, I just want to thank you again, Joe, for coming on the show. Or talk to me about the after action of response of the Surfside uh, Miami condo collapse and uh, walking us through your own personal experiences. I know you, because you've had so much personal experience, it was really hard for you to be out there. And so um, just want to say, you know, again, we're thankful for everything you've done. On a very positive note, Disaster Medical Solutions, big fan of your organization. Thank you again for inviting me out to that USAR training because I had got to understand perspective before this building collapsed. And I know you're doing another training on November 30th through December 3rd. I'm promoting your company. I should start getting paid for it. But uh, no, but seriously, like if you're in, if you're a firefighter, you're listening to the show right now, or you're a paramedic and you, you want to get more USAR training, there is a FEMA course that uh, Joe puts on his him and his company. Again, just the best in the country. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. It's a, it's a medical perspective and they go all out, um, you really get to, to walk out of there as a true expert, and we're grateful that those people were on the rubble pile. I'm glad that they were trained by you. So Disaster Medical Solutions again, November 30th through December 3rd, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you, John. Have a great week.